666 Shock Avenue, your uh, avenue for everything creepy and somewhat unsettling. Especially today, it's going to be highly, highly unsettling. So, as I can silence my phone, I will get started on today's show. Yes, yes, it's been like, uh, what, two weeks or whatever since I dropped an episode. Sorry about that. I have a lot on my plate. And that's life in general for me. And so I thought, you know, hey, uh, make it up to the listening audience somehow. I noticed which is all male now. Hopefully I can get some ladies in on this. Uh, but then again, not all ladies like the horror realm, so that's understandable. Uh, well, today, uh, well, I mean, you know, Strange things happen all the time in history, and I want to cover five things I found floating around on the internet that was rather, uh, no unsettling, let's say. Yeah, Gloria Ramirez, uh, the case of the toxic woman, this happened in 1994 on February 19th. Uh, an advanced cervical cancer patient named Gloria Ramirez was... Uh, in pain, confused, suffering from poor breathing, and her heart was beating at a rate too high for her body. Well, she uh, was administered sedatives, and they had to defibrillate her, or defibrillate her. I'm tongue-tied. Oh well. Anyway, defibrillate her. Yeah, thank you. And it was around this time that something just didn't seem to feel right. So when they, you know, uh, looked, they noticed that there was some kind of oil on her body and that smelled of fruit and garlic. They think that it was her breath. So one of the RNs tried to draw blood from Ramirez, which she did, only to notice an ammonia smell from her blood, which was obviously strange. So she just passes it on to a resident, and the resident noted that there were these particles floating around in the blood that was drawn. So she begins to feel nauseous, the resident does, and passes out uh, after she moved outside to sit at the nurse's desk. 
this created a domino effect of a whole bunch of people just passing out. Nobody knew what was going on. And actually, there were several underlying theories for this. Theories because nobody has ever been able to solve the mystery of uh, the death of Ms. Ramirez, who, by the way, passed away shortly after. Uh, actually, 35 minutes would pass and the end result was kidney failure related to her advanced cancer. The hospital had actually failed quality checks in a way. Uh, there were multiple, multiple uh, problems with that hospital. One such instance, sewer gas was found within the air of the ER and one nurse actually sued the hospital and everything and you know they think that it was all kinds of strange things they think that it was mass hysteria the workers deny the mass hysteria saying it stretched far beyond psychological because mass hysteria is a domino chain reaction that is normally psychological and everything else and so the staff is denying it so much that it ended up being lawsuits uh there ended up being lawsuits as an outcome of this the residents spent two weeks in icu developed hepatitis had breathing problems and there's a lot of theories surrounding uh the whole death of Gloria Ramirez, one of them which there was a home degreaser that she may have used as a pain reliever from her cancer, could have created a gas in the room causing the workers pain. And to this day, the Ramirez family, the workers and the investigators have not settled the debate. The Ramirez family obviously wants answers concerning the death of Gloria. And so it's been a really... Uh, bad time for uh, the Riverside General Hospital in 1994 with issues going back to 91 and there's all kinds of reasons why it why there is no way that it could have been the um, it could have been the uh, the oil that was on her body because uh, there's a lot of scientific reasoning behind it, and obviously, I can't think of it right now. So yes, that was number one, Gloria Ramirez, a toxic woman. Number two, we have Armin Mivas. Now this guy was a German computer technician. The episode is going to be marked explicit for this part. If you are around kids, I do not recommend they be in the room or even told this story. It is very graphic, disgusting, and would probably cause a lot of nightmares. And this is, unfortunately, we have people in the world that are like this, who uh, decide to get their kicks from different avenues in life and travel down some rather dark avenues to do that. Armin Mibus is one such case. He was a regular visitor to a number of sites with less than normal ideas about cannibalism. Now you may have heard about this guy. Um, yeah, he was something else. 
and namely those in favor of it. So he hung out at the Cannibal Cafe, which is debunked, or not debunked, but defunct, excuse me. <laughs> it's defunct, yeah. It has been for quite a while, at least a decade, I believe I saw, because I did research this. So, the Cannibal Cafe was a blog where people shared their interest in cannibalism and a place where he began posting advertisements looking for someone to volunteer themselves to be eaten. Yes, eaten. Completely slaughtered and eaten, I think was the language used. I think I covered this guy in another podcast or maybe a YouTube video before, but this story, even for me, never gets less bizarre. So, imagine you're on the internet, you know, and you just hop over to this website, and you see an ad looking for a well-built 18 to 30-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed. Yeah, to his credit, Mivis didn't force anyone to be slaughtered and eaten. Instead, he would talk to those who responded, and they backed out. He was okay with it, said, okay, you know, that's, that's fine, I'll just keep looking. You know, stand-up guy, right? So... He found a seemingly willing volunteer in the end, Baron Jorgen Armando Brandes, on March 9th of 2001 is when they met. And he was picked up by Mivis in a vehicle, and when he entered, he had a plastic bag with him, and as well as, I think, a piece of luggage or something. And, of course, this is where it gets graphic, so this is your two-second warning. So, what unfolds afterward is obviously pure chaos. You get two people in the same room who are okay with eating another human being, you know. So, basically, uh, the guy, Brandis, he gets in there, and he just dresses, and uh, they do things together. Uh, Brandis and Mivis were homosexuals and this was a sort of sexual fetish in the end it was determined that Midas displayed so basically um, well this doesn't get any easier to talk about but hey you know what would this podcast be without a shocking bit of information given to you every time you visit so Brandis gave Midas permission permission to amputate his penis and the two attempted to eat the penis together and it was too chewy to be consumed and I watched an interview with Armin Mivas and he said that the meat was so fresh that it shriveled up in the pan and all that. He says that human flesh tastes like pork only stronger than pork. So Brandis was going to pull out eventually or was going to pull out at one point, so they were going to go back, and it was a failed thing, uh, because he told Mivas he couldn't inflict the pain upon him that he desired, and so on the way back to a train station, I think, he ended up changing his mind and saying, okay, now I'm good, and so they stopped into a pharmacist or a chemist, what have you, and purchase sleeping pills and once back Brandis takes 20 sleeping pills and half a bottle of schnapps. So after the amputation of Mivis, being the nice compassionate cannibal he is, set up a bath for Brandis whom he checked on every 15 minutes. 
at her sometime. Brandis got out of that and tried to stand up and he became unconscious due to blood loss and everything else. And Midas began to think whether or not he should kill Brandis. And although the man had given Midas permission to cut off and eat his penis, he had not said that he could be killed. So Midas did eventually kill the man, stabbing him and basically slitting his throat. And he hung the body on a meat hook in the ceiling to prepare it for eating. And all of the events of the night up to this point were recorded which was later recovered by the police who had ended up being called out to the farmhouse where Midas lived and they found the tape and they were told that the flesh from Brandis was actually pork and it was not pork obviously so Midas continued to eat from Brandis's corpse for 10 months after the killing now, this student tips off the police saying that the pair were at Mibus's farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere. So they go out there. When the police search his home, they discover the videotape and body parts. And get this, since his conviction, Mibus has apologized for his actions and become a vegetarian. Wow. Uh, change comes in the strangest ways, doesn't it? So that was the whole uh, Armin Mibus thing, probably one of the most disturbing cases I've heard in a lot of the whole time that I researched horrific things like shock videos, shock sites, etc. Yeah, uh, that's probably in a lot of the jury that viewed the videos uh, were pretty much uh, seeking a therapist after viewing them. So we have number three, the Mercy Brown Vampire Incident. So in the late 1800s in New England, Massachusetts around there, uh, there was a vampire panic, like the Satanic Panic. And it was a huge vampire fad. It says fad in the article. It was really a panic, actually. And uh, the New England vampire scares were a bit too real. And so basically, in a nutshell, there was a deadly, deadly pandemic, much like what we're experiencing now, tuberculosis. And uh, I have theories about some of the things going on now in relation to tuberculosis. But Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Vermont were all suffering from the outbreak of tuberculosis. It's an airborne thing, and it basically needs a host, obviously. And so once it gets the host, it basically kills them. You know, they cough up blood and stuff, I think. Uh, it was called consumption at the time because the cause was unknown at this time. Or at that time, rather. Although the people knew that once one family member got the disease, others were soon to follow. The popular theory of the time was that the first infected member of the family was draining the life force off the relatives functioning as some sort of living dead. Those who died from consumption were assumed and examined. If their body seemed quote-unquote too fresh, it was assumed that they were still feeding on the living. So basically, uh, Mercy Brown passed out at 19. Her brother had it, as well as his mother. 
and he goes to Colorado where it was warmer because it was in a very cold, cold uh, week or whatever. It's been a while. And so basically, he goes off to Colorado to try to combat the consumption or tuberculosis, and he comes back and he finds out that his sister is pretty much going to die sooner is already dead. So what happened was when they had exhumed Mercy Brown from her grave, uh, they brought the casket, found she had turned in her casket. This is due to a theory that perhaps by poor judgment by the medical examiner that she was in fact buried alive, which leads me to think they did not bomb the body at the time, nor remove the internal organs, they just laid them in, and that was that, as far as burial goes. So they came with solutions, three of them actually, turning the body toward the earth in the casket, uh, in other words, burying them face down, burning the vital organs, and then finally uh, also decapitation as option three. Now, the strange thing is, some even believe that the smoke and ash from the burned organs would cure the tuberculosis. Marcy Brown's was perhaps the most infamous case of exhumation. Her family did not believe that vampires were to blame for consumption and did not want her body exhumed. However, when other villagers insisted, her father gave in wisely noting his neighbor's mob mentality. When Mercy was dug up, her body showed signs of fresh blood, and this is probably due to the fact that they buried her a while after she had died, and it was cold, uh, very cold, literally cold, so the process of decomposition had slowed down and possibly retained fresh blood in her heart that would have lasted for a while. I mean, it, it was a while. And so basically, they forced Mercy's brother, who was currently suffering from the consumption, to drink the ashes that resulted from them uh, burning her internal organs. Uh, and so he drank it. And so much for that, because Edward, her brother, died two months after drinking the horrifying concoction of ash and water, can you imagine? And so basically, some people suggest that Bram Stoker's Dracula character, Lucy Westenroth, was based on Mercy, and the story remained popular in Exeter, the Rhode Island town the Browns called home. So basically, the New England includes Rhode Island and Massachusetts, all that, uh, all those, and you know, this happened in Rhode Island, they blamed on the pilgrim, or not the pilgrims, they blamed it on the ones coming over to Plymouth Rock, uh, the English that was uh, bound over here, I guess. Anyway, so next up we have the bandit who wouldn't give up. We're talking about Elmer McCurdy, and he was actually... Probably, this is a very strange case as well, because over a hundred years after his death, people are still talking about this. So basically, what happened was, he was uh, born, uh, 
His mother, Sadie, was only 17 at the time of his birth, and she was unmarried, and that was frowned upon by a lot of religious people. And um, so Elmer was basically adopted by Sadie's brother and raised by him and his wife. And not long after Elmer's quote-unquote father died, Sadie decided to admit that she was Elmer's mother. This threw him into a whole spin, and he went from a normal child to a teen alcoholic. Prone to acting out, his world was rocked to the core, no doubt about that. Elmer moved in with his grandmother and found work as an apprentice plumber, a job which he excelled. So he was a very talented guy. Uh, of course, he had joined the military and stuff. But basically, he was discharged. Uh, but yeah, he uh, was also a minor as well and offered his services whenever possible. So we have uh, a long string of wrong side of the law where he robbed trains and everything else. And he ended up being holed up in a barn. Law enforcement killed him mostly with a shot to the neck by a lawman's rifle and he was not too smart um, in general because he would try to pull off these bank jobs and nitroglycerin and everything taught how to handle it by the military and he would often blow his heist and have very little salvageable. Now basically since I only get a set amount of time to do this podcast, uh, the month stretched uh, after the the uh, undertaker received his body. Nobody claimed it, so you know he had to be paid for his services. So he would start exhibiting the body to charge to see it, and it was a regular thing. And people came and they actually saw the body, and this really was something else. Uh, he was actually featured in a movie, an actual uh, corpse. Uh, Elmer McCurdy was featured in a film, uh, let's see here, She Freak. And uh, that is found on uh, online. I think YouTube has it. Uh, it's streaming on Fandor, Fandor, and Amazon, uh, all that. So, basically, there was a change of hand, and people uh, began to plot to steal away the body. It succeeded, and then, you know, it was just horrible. So, finally, 75 years later, he was given a proper burial, and it was really really strange. Um, yeah. So, you know, you can imagine this mummified body running around. He was laid to rest being carried by a horse-drawn hearse that was glass window. display was him. And then they buried him on top of a lot, or they buried him below a lot of concrete runner. So, open water, uh, number five, that was number four. Number five, we have the terrifying true story behind Open Water. You thought it was just a movie. It is not. It's based on a real-life story. And this came out in 2003. 
Uh, this one streams free on YouTube, by the way. So this goes back to 1998. A Louisiana couple, uh, Tom and Eileen Lonergan, was on vacation in Australia after a peaceful uh, corpse mission. In Fiji, they decided they wanted to dive and uh, go exploring underwater in Australia, which was nearby. And, uh, I mean, Australia itself is deadly. I read about cassowaries and all that, and how vicious they are. So there's a lot of things out there uh, that can really get you really quick. So basically, they decided to scuba dive through the Great Barrier Reef, and this is where the problem began. They and 18 others went on the St. Crispin's Reef, and when the time came to get the boat to return to shore, the Lonergans were left behind by the rest of the crew, and I don't see how on earth you could leave your friends behind such treacherous waters. There are a lot of theories stretching about whether or not they were eaten by sharks. They did find this black, or this, uh, this thing, and they had scrawled on it, uh, help uh, before we die, get us help. And there were a lot of different, um, there were a lot of different theories, like they, they got on a boat with a bunch of battalions, and like, you know, just kind of left, went somewhere else to start a new life. Actually, Monday, January 26th, 1998, at 8 a.m. If anyone can help us, we have been abandoned uh, in the reef, in the outer edge. 25th of January, 1993 p.m. Please help rescue us before we die. Help. That was uh, found in not their bodies. There were rumors of Mr. Lonigan wanting to die and all this. And his wife was going to help him. And so, you know, that's the whole, that's all thing behind open water. Uh, like I said, streaming free on YouTube. So, that's it for the podcast. Have you heard any of these stories, either through me or just looking on the internet? Uh, at first, I was going to say the post-mortem tour of Mr. McCurdy was really an appalling thing. Uh, but really, I would have to say that Arvin Mibus was probably something that takes a cake. Uh, but, you know, equally, these it's all a matter of perception. Things are equally terrifying at times. And so basically, that's it really for 660 Shock Avenue. And uh, so, anyway, until next time, take care of yourself.